Preparation for our celebrating the Lord's table together. The Bible will be turned to Genesis 1, but instead I invite you to return with me, please, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, 5-0. The text is going to be from verse 7, but I want to read beginning with verse 4 in the context. After the prophet accuses God's people of being the ones that are responsible for the reasons why they are going through a chastening and judgment, he then directs their attention to the coming Messiah. And so we read of that Messiah beginning in verse 4 The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak, heard and seasoned, to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Then in verse 7, which is our text, the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Once again, let's pray for the help of God. Most gracious and glorious God, we thank you and praise you that you are willing to part with your own son for a while. You sent him away from heaven's glory to the earth that had rebelled against you. And we do thank you that this same Lord Jesus was so determined to save us that he went through trial after trial in order that he might finally lay down his life, that he might atone for our sins. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to be encouraged, to be refreshed as we gaze upon him, also, we pray that you would enable us to imitate and follow his example. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Interpreters have suggested various individuals to be the subject of this remarkable prophecy that I just read. For instance, some have surmised that the prophet Isaiah is speaking about himself. There is no doubt in my mind that the subject of this prophecy is the Messiah. I could go into all reasons why it's not Isaiah or this or that, but it is simpler for me to just state that this is speaking about the Lord Jesus. There is no historical evidence that Isaiah was ever in the circumstances described here, or that certain descriptions of the subject of this prophecy were fulfilled in him. When we come and compare these verses with what the Bible says about Jesus, what he, what he went through for us, we see how perfectly these words fit the Lord Jesus. And for instance, Christians read in verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my, shame, my face from shame and spitting. Instantly, we are reminded of the descriptions that the gospel gives of the sadistic manner in which Jesus was 
treated as he was brought before Herod and as he was brought before Pilate. Luke chapter 18, for instance, in verses 31 and 32, he explicitly refers to the brutality described in his place. And he speaks of the fulfillment of that which was described in Isaiah 50. He applies these events to himself when he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. What's going to be accomplished? What was written in the prophets? For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And in their accounts of the trials of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Matthew and Mark, they likewise refer to the mistreatment that, was, that is described here in Isaiah chapter 50. And likewise, when we come to our text in verse 7, Therefore I have set my face like a flint. Those words especially find fulfillment, I do believe, in the words of, in the example of the narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ. The image of a flint is a very vivid image. It is a perfect description of determination to fulfill a given task. And it reminds us of what we read in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Now it came to pass that when his time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. It doesn't use the word flint there, but it speaks again in, in the same words almost. He set his face, he set his face like a flint to go there. He wasn't going to be deterred and go off sidetracking some other place. And he went to that very place, Jerusalem, that he, where he was going to be arrested, where he was going to be tried, and where he was going to be crucified. Now from all eternity, Jesus resolved to save you and me from our sins. And nothing could keep the Lord Jesus from following through on his commitment, his resolve to save us, the very purpose for which he came into the world. And knowing full well that it was going to be in Jerusalem that he would be falsely accused, that he would be mocked, that he would be spat upon, that he would be buffeted, and that he would be scourged, and that he would there outside the walls of that city then be crucified, he determined to go to Jerusalem. His face was set that he might go to that place, that he might give himself up to the awful degradation, the awful torments that awaited him in that place. All because, dear people, he was absolutely determined, and nothing could stop him from that determination to save you and me from our sins. Now the image of setting one's face like a flint is a very vivid description of the inflexible determination now, flint, as you know, are used in arrowheads, especially in our own country. Sometimes farmers are plowing the field, there will be some of these arrowheads that will be turned up as the soil is turned over. And it was the preferred kind of rock that they used back in limited times to make arrowheads, to make tools, to make weapons. And the reason why is that flint is a very hard substance, but it can be chipped in such a manner as to create a very hard, sharp edge. And the image of hardening one's face or brown, it can be either used in a good sense or in a bad sense. In Isaiah 
It, it can be used, for instance, in, in, to, to depict in a bad sense shamelessness or stubbornness. In Isaiah 48, 4, God describes the shameless stubbornness of Israel when he says, I knew you were obstinate, and your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow was bronze. But the image of a hard look on one's face, this can also be used in a good sense to describe determination to do what's right. It's the opposite, you see, of softness in the face of opposition. It's the opposite of having a face that's like clay putty that can be just shaped by anybody's ideas, people putting pressure on somebody, that they, to please that person he says and does whatever they expect him to do. God says to Ezekiel, Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like an adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead strong against their foreheads. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. So we read in Ezekiel chapter 3. This is the picture of the Lord Jesus conveyed in our text. He was not dismayed by the opposition that he faced. The stubborn, rebellious looks on the faces of those that hated him did not deter him. Did not keep him back from doing what he came to do. His resolve was like the hardness of the flint, or as it's put elsewhere, the hardness of an adamant stone, of hardened steel, you might say. Now, my primary aim this morning is to lead you to love him who loved you so much that his face was set as a flint in his determination to save you. You have been saved by means of the resolute determination of a steadfast Redeemer that's depicted in our text. And the face is a window into a person's soul. And in the soul of Jesus was a determination that was, as it were, pictured, as it were, upon his face. He had in his soul a hardness and determination that, it would, that nothing would stop him, in this sense, from saving you and saving me from our sins. Now, our resolve, our determination, it gives away real easily. We give, give up, you see, in the face of far less difficulty in opposition. And in the face of infinitely greater difficulties, Jesus' resolve never gave way. Now, in our title and in our outline, we use the phrase undaunted resolve. Now, the word undaunted, I've chosen this word deliberately means undismayed. It means not discouraged. It means not forced to abandon one's purpose. It's a word that's also used to describe the kind of courage that does not give way in the face of fear and danger. It describes the general, it describes the soldiers that press the battle forward, you see, in the face of a withering onslaught in which the soldiers are falling right and left, and yet they are determined, and they press forward as one on that day, on that battle. That's the picture you see. This was the kind of determination that was in the heart of your Savior when he went forth to confront the kind of horrors that far exceeded that which is faced in the most fearful battle here on earth. Now maybe some of you have seen Saving Private Ryan. The deafening sounds, it's 
Dusting in a theater, because it creates dust, the, the atmosphere, these deafening sounds, and the terrifying sights of the first few minutes of that movie. And these sounds and sights, they depict soldiers on D-Day falling on the right and on the left. They depict these soldiers as they struggle through the water, they're getting shot out of the water. They're going across the beach, they're getting mowed down the beach, they're climbing up the cliffs and they're getting mowed down there too. It's, it's white knuckle type of, of, of sounds and sights that you see. You, you instantly just grab the, the, the armrest you see that you're sitting next to. And this is the picture you see of soldiers that went in in spite of awful opposition. And so you can get a picture of how truly terrifying it was to, to face the German co-boxes on the top of those cliffs. And on that day, soldiers that Brave that withering fire, they were undaunted in their resolve. That's the picture you see. In the face of opposition that was prolonged far longer, and it was at times far more terrifying than even D Day, Jesus set his face like a flint to save you and to save me from our sins. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion I'm not going to get to all the points that are there in your outlines. As time allows, it's my aim especially to show you, first of all, how Jesus' undaunted resolve was tested. That's going to be our main point. We may not even get that past that main point. Then we want to, perhaps in this sermon or the next, to see how this resolve was balanced, how it was sustained, and how it is to be imitated. And at various points, I'm especially indebted to Spurgeon and McLaren, thoughts I'm about to convey. Now first of all, this is our main point here this morning, we want to look at how his, his resolve, his, his undaunted resolve was tested. From eternity, Jesus knew full well what it was to take us and deliver us from our sins. He could see the price that would be paid. Jesus had eternity to change his mind. If he was ever disposed to do it, he had, he had eternity to, to do so. Now for you and me, it's a good thing that we don't know what's going to happen to us, the difficulties we're going to encounter. We wouldn't try anything if we knew what we would be up against. But the future lay before Jesus in great vividness. It, it, it lay before him in great detail what was going to happen. And if he were to see, you see, the white knuckle scenes that are played out ahead uh, up in, as it were on a, new, on a movie screen, like when you see Satan Private Ryan, that's the kind of vividness you see, you can see everything with. After he came into this world, even as a 12-year-old boy, he was seeing this. He's found in the temple at the time of Passover. Passover was depicted at time depicting his death. And when his parents found him at last in the temple, he asked them, why did you see me? Why were you running all over the place around town? Did you know where I would be? Did you not know, he says, that I must be about my father's business? Even as a boy, you see, the dark shadow of Calvary, the terrible business that was going to be his business, that this, the Passover was, was signifying, 
And he was celebrating the Passover. This terrible business was before his mind. And throughout his life, his set determination to redeem his people, this was an all-consuming passion that constantly burned in his soul. Throughout his life, the dark shadow of Calvary cast its ominous, ominous hues over his soul. For instance, on one occasion, he said to his disciples, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. That which lay ahead, it was like a water baptism. It was going to inundate his soul. And on the eve of becoming the Lamb of God Passover, even though he knew full well what those agonies would be, he said to his disciples with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And from his childhood all the way up to the eve of his suffering and death, you see here how it was fulfilled that Jesus set his face like a flint until the stupendous task was done. Well, as we consider the way in which this resolve was tested, let me remind you that Jesus had a genuine human nature, just like you and I. He had feelings. He had nerves in his fingers and in his feet and elsewhere. He had emotions like you and I have. His body was just as tender to pain as ours are. His soul was just as able to feel the pain of shame as you feel when you are put to shame, especially if it's unjustly. He, he was just as able in the face of the onslaught of danger that would make hair stand up on the back of our necks. He could feel it in that way. He could visualize it. He could see it. And in fact, you see, these things, such as shame, they would have been even more painful for Jesus because of his special sensitivity about sin and being falsely accused about sin. And he had a pure heart. And to be accused of the vilest blasphemy in the life, this hurt him. And yet in spite of his sensitivity to shame and to pain, nothing could stop him from doing what he came to do. His last journey during which he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, this is a type of his whole life. Now consider with me how this resolve was tested. Here I want to go through. We won't spend a lot of time on each of these points, but I want to go through in various ways. First of all, his resolve was tested by the office of the prince of this world. Remember how in the wilderness, Satan played on the natural sensitivities of Jesus' humanity. <coughs> He began with an appeal to the natural cravings for food. And there's an said that he hungered after 40 days of fasting. An intense, painful hunger set in upon him, greater than even before. And Jesus, and, and, and Satan knew that Jesus was going through this experience. He knew that Jesus' body was on the verge of death, it was so bad. And he knew that this was a point in which his human nature would have been at its weakness. And he tempts him, therefore, to make food out of stones rather than depend upon the care of his father. 
But Satan's crowning temptation in the wilderness was that of showing Jesus on the top of the mountain. He takes him there. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Then he says, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now what was Jesus, what was Satan doing? He was making an appeal to the natural version of every human being who pain and suffering. Jesus had that aversion. It wasn't that well, he just kind of liked being suffering, getting beat upon him and the like. No. It was just as painful to him as it would have been for you and me. And so the devil's making an appeal to, to this desire, natural desire, to avoid suffering and pain. And he offers him a kingdom, you see, in a very much easier way. All you gotta do is just take your fight before me. A little bit, a little bit of a bow, it's all yours. You don't have to go through all that stuff there at, the, at Calvary. It was an attempt, you see, to get Jesus to give in to the prospect of obtaining the kingdom without suffering the cross. Jesus' face was set like a flame. He refused to save his offer. He knew that the only way that he could save us was by becoming our substitute. Satan's great agency was that of derailing his regenerative purpose. But as attractive as the offer was, Jesus resolved to remain firm. So his resolve was tested by the offerings of the prince of the world. Secondly, his resolve was tested by the acclaim of the multitude. The people wanted to take him by force, remember, to make him king. And at times, he was so popular among the multitudes that the Pharisees didn't dare arrest him. They were afraid of the people, what they were doing. And when he drew near the city of Jerusalem, Matthew tells us, and here I quote, a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And many of them cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What were they saying with these praise words? They supposed that he was the promised Son of David. They called him the Son of David. The royal one. They supposed that he was about to come and set up an earthly throne. He was going to drive the Romans out of Israel. And they would have gladly accepted and received that kind of an earthly Messiah. But the true Messiah didn't come just to do battle in earthly terms. He came to suffer for their sins. He came to engage in the spiritual conquest of overcoming sin. Now he could have accepted it. The easier way that they were offering. They wanted to make a king right then and there. And he could have, he had the power, he could have just obliterated the Romans. He could have done that easily enough. He could have accepted to see this glamorous robe of sitting on an earthly throne. But his heart was set on going to the cross. When the multitude discovered that he wasn't going to go along with their carnal scheme, they changed their tone. They began to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And many a man has fallen from the worldly trap that was laid before Jesus. The narrow, costly path of enduring reproach with Jesus will seize him. This has deterred many from taking a stand for righteousness. Earthly honors, you see, sometimes are offered to us. Maybe, for instance, 
manage buffer the position of being a CEO of a growing company. And he, or maybe he, he's offered being elected to a high office in the land or becoming famous as a musician. And at such points, you see, the Christian has to make a cost-benefit analysis. And the temptation, you see, is to conclude that a few compromises here and there will just be a small thing compared to the prestige that can be gained by saying and doing what people want. And they suppose, you see, that by gaining a proper position as a CEO or a famous musician and the like, I'll be able to do more for the kingdom. I'll, be, I'll have you see a platform, you see, for the gospel. But to get this position, such a person has to violate his or her conscience. Maybe stretch the truth a little bit to get votes. Or maybe replace going to God's house on the Lord's day with immersing themselves with the, the race, the rat race of the Lord. You see, the world that offers what appears to be a desirable shortcut in things done in the kingdom. And so they violate their conscience in order to get ahead in the world. But Jesus refused to do this. The acclaim of the multitude, the popularity of the masses, this did not stop him from his purpose. In the third place, Christ's resolve was tested by the entreaties of his friends. On at least one occasion, his relatives said that he was beside himself. And they would have laid hold of him. They would have shut him up in a house and kept him away from the crowds if they could have done it. You're, you're just wearing yourself out and going nuts here. What are you doing? And they thought that in his zeal he was getting carried away. That he was going crazy. And worse yet, on one occasion, the chief spokesman among his disciples Try to dissuade him from carrying out his mission. When Jesus spoke of his approaching death on the cross. Remember how Matthew tells us that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus could see Satan behind Peter's proposition. His face, it was set like a flint. He refused Peter's misguided, satanic suggestion. And how often it is that well-meaning friends, well-meaning loved ones, there are that seek to dissuade us from the purpose that God has for you to lead. And if God is calling you to serve him in a special manner, maybe as a missionary, maybe at the mission here in downtown Albany, maybe in a crisis pregnancy center, Maybe as a tutor of some disadvantaged student to help that student get ahead, and you hope to have a window for the gospel. Maybe God is calling you to do something like that. Beware of those that will try to dissuade you from that and tell you, well, you're going to a dangerous part of the world. You shouldn't go over there as a missionary. Are you going into a dangerous part of, of, of Albany? What if Jesus made those kind of calculations? What if he didn't do anything that was dangerous? What if he didn't do anything that exposed himself? You see, the trouble and opposition. He would have never been our redeemer if that was his attitude. His resolve was tested, you see, by the pleas, by the entreaties of friends of, that wanted it. They were well meaning, they thought. We want to keep you from getting yourself into, into difficulty. 
Stop doing this stuff. Stop going crazy. Just be reasonable here. People will talk to us the same way, and we need to set our face like a flint, just like Jesus did. The fourth place, his resolve was tested by the unworthiness of his people. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. He came into the vineyard as God's heir. And when he came to the vineyard, what did the vine dresser say? This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. All the disciples forsook him and fled. Now all these people were the kind of people who came to stay. And it, it certainly would have been a very real temptation for him to say, well, all these other things, is it really worth the sacrifice for these ingrates? His own people filled the streets of Jerusalem. They screamed for his death. And not just any death, but the most painful, prolonged kind of death that they could come up with. And some of these very people were the ones for whom he shed his precious blood. And we know this because on the day of Pentecost, they repented as Peter preached, and they believed in the very one that a few days before, a few weeks before, they with wicked hands had crucified and slain. Now we tend to restrict our benevolence to those that we call worthy poor. People that they're not trying to milk the system, they're not doing this and that, they're the worthy poor. That's the attitude that we have, and there's a certain validity to that. But Jesus didn't restrict what he did for the people that are worthy. He came for the unworthy, that's all of us. And as Paul puts it in Romans 5, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, his resolve, Christ's resolve, was tested by the unworthiness of his people. Why go through such suffering for such numerous, such people? But he was resolved, and that temptation did not overcome him. Number five, Christ's resolve was tested also by the bitter taste of the cup that he was about to drink. Now, repeatedly, the Old Testament speaks of the wicked being compelled to drink the cup of God's wrath as a punishment for their sins. Picture of a cup as being a cup of judgment, a cup of wrath. That's mentioned many times in the Old Testament. I'll give you just one example Psalm 11 and verse 6. But while the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of this cup. It'll be fire and brimstone in that cup. That's the picture. Now for Jesus, he had a cup put to him. And this cup included excruciating and prolonged physical torture. But the worst part of his sufferings, they were spiritual in nature. And even the very first sparks you see of the indignation of the hell that, was about to get, that he was about to plunge himself into, 
The very first sparks that he felt as he was there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, they seared his soul with agonizing heat. And even there, his soul was immersed in an unbearable spiritual agony that threatened even to take his life. I, I have, sometimes you can almost wish you were dead to gain wisdom and impression. But this was a sorrow, he says, that was about to kill him. That's how, how, how strong it was, how deep it was. My soul, he says, exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. This sorrow, this depression is about to kill me. His soul began, as it were, to be plunged into the fiery furnace of damnation that his human nature shrank back from. And so repeatedly, on that occasion, on that occasion, he prayed, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will have, but as you will. Then, when he was given no word of a reprieve from the Father, he submitted to his Father's will, and without a murmuring word, he gave himself up to die. Now, if anything could have broken Jesus' holy resolution to do what he came to do, it would have been the agony and the bloody sweat of his sin. And yet, even this didn't turn him from his determination to suffer the horrors of Golgotha. Have you ever been plunged into the depths of depression and sorrow so, so deep you wished you had never been born? Have you ever gone to that place where you're in darkness, there's no light? That's described at the end of Isaiah chapter 50, the very chapter we're in. We're in. At such times, you see, resolutions that have been wisely made are often unwisely broken. We give way. And the strongest man can scarcely withstand the overpowering and the crushing effect of intense bouts of depression. Solomon truly spoke when he said, The spirit of a man will, will sustain his infirmity. But a wounded spirit, who can bear? Yet even when our Savior was plunged into these kinds of depths, so terrifying that he said his soul was sorrowful even unto death, even then he did not give up his resolve to save you and me from our sins. Even when reproach had broken his heart and he was full of heaviness, he still set his face to go to Jerusalem, there he was in Jerusalem, now he set his face, that he would give himself up to the damnation of an eye to serve. The sixth place, Christ's resolve was tested by the ease with which he could have escaped the cross. Now, there are many that are difficult circumstances that remain in those circumstances because there's no way of escaping them. They have no way to get themselves out of the jam. And so they're there, but it's not because they're so virtuous that they're still in these circumstances, they just don't know how to get out of them. But at any moment along the way, Jesus could have easily escaped the trials that were ahead of him. Just take, for example, when he's standing before Pilate. He's dealing with a man that knew Jesus was his. Repeatedly, Pilate said, I find no fault in and all Jesus needed to do was to say what was expected of him, and Pilate would have ruled differently. Instead, we read, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. 
And Pilate was stunned. He was he marveled at this that he had gave him no answer. You see, Jesus might easily have disproved the accusations that the chief priests and the others were making against him. He could have easily disproved it all, and Pilate might have released him. And it's clear that Pilate, he had no wish to put him to death. But one thing, he was very troubled by the dream that his wife had had that night. And if Jesus wanted to do so, you see, he could have easily turned Pilate against his accusers. And Pilate would have called for the Roman soldiers and ordered them to disperse the crowd and just slaughter a few people just to make sure they don't do this again. He could have easily done that. But instead, Jesus did not answer a word. This was absolutely astonishing to Pilate. He'd never seen that, that kind of conduct before. Even before he was arrested and tried, he could have easily escaped then. When Peter took a swipe at the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear and now he was aiming to cut off his neck and just missed the whole thing. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must happen? He said, I could have called upon legions of angels, thousands of diseases is in a legion. I could have called for many of these legions. But the very moment in which he was arrested, to each of the judicial trials that he went through, to the scourging, to the bearing of the cross up that hill to Golgotha, to the very nailing of his hands and feet, with just a wish he could have delivered himself. With calling upon the omnipotence of his divine nature, he could have just stopped it at any moment. It was as if he was in the cell and he had the key to get out. All he could do is turn the key. Would it be done? He didn't do that. He didn't do any of these things because he was resolved to endure all the horrors that awaited him that he might bear our sins on the cross. Then in the seventh place, his resolve was tested by the taunts of the wicked. Cruel, hard-hearted soldiers nailed him with a cursed tree. You see him writhing in agony. You see his body shiver with pain as they pound the nails into his hands and his feet. One might suppose that there'd be somebody that would speak kindly to him then. Somebody would see this is all. I didn't see this man doing anything wrong. Look what they're doing to him. He doesn't deserve this. So you'd think that somebody would have, would, would have said something kind to him. But what do we read? Those who passed by blasting him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he can't save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe. At any moment, he could have accepted that mocking challenge. He could have come down from the cross at any moment. He could have leaped upon that ribald crowd, and like a destroying angel, he could have just consigned them all to the fiery furnace that they all deserved. He could have done it in a moment. But instead, 
His resolve remained undaunted by their blasphemous taunts. He persevered to that very moment when he could cry out, It is finished. And then finally, Christ's resolve was tested by the unmitigated agonies of Golgotha itself. For hours he suffered the physical agonies of the cross, the tearing of the spikes from his hands and feet, the pain each time he pushed his feet upon those spikes to be able to take another breath. The pain in his flesh being ripped open by the scourging, still rubbing against the wooden cross behind his back. The pounding headache and fever. A fever headache growing more intense by the hour. Truly, those who were scourged, those who were crucified, they died a thousand deaths. But these outward sufferings, they were just a shadow of the spiritual excruciations that Jesus endured. And who can possibly describe those sufferings? The liturgy of the ancient Greek church expressed it best, I think, when addressing Christ, who spoke of thine unknown agonies. None of us can hear that. It's beyond us to understand. Their intensity can only be known by the divine sufferer himself. No angel can ever fathom their death. No finite mind can, can comprehend the breadth of these sufferings. What mere mortal can ever understand the extremity of that suffering that forced him to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the language of, of people cast into outer darkness, forsaken for eternity. Why, he cries. Surely in those words, the concentration of all the strokes with which infinite justice lashed Jesus' soul on our behalf. Those words, they contain in the impudent guilt, you see, of a company of people that nobody can find. Yet as Jesus descended into those hellish depths, even into those unknown agonies, these unknown agonies could not dissuade him from enduring the penalty our sins right up to the very end. For these eight ways then, Jesus' undaunted resolve was tested to the uttermost. I think I'm going to say much of what I wanted to also say about his undaunted resolve being balanced by other characteristics. I will sustain that we have lessons about how you and I Learn to imitate his resolve, how we can be sustained in our resolve. And I had also wanted to speak to you about how this resolve should be imitated by you and me. Just briefly before we close and before we gather around the table, let me just say that no matter what kind of discouragements, no matter what kind of threats that you face, give your whole soul to advancing the cause of the gospel. Do you think that doing the work of the gospel in this place has always been easy? Do you think that it's easy for pastors to prepare sermons? It's easy for deacons to do their work. It's 
It's easy for people to do what they do. It's easy for us to uh, open our mouths for the gospel. It's easy to go down on a mission. It isn't always. There always are going to be obstacles and difficulties. The week that it's your turn to preach the mission might be the most intense you have for all kinds of other reasons. And often in the work of spreading the gospel, we meet with opposition. We meet with people that are critics. We meet with people that, that, that unconverted people that try to tear us down. And, and you say it's getting hard, you see, to do this work of the gospel. It's getting hard for us as a church in the midst of what's called the most atheistic city in North America. It's hard for us to see, to grow as a church. It's hard for us to, to keep doing what God has called us to do. It's hard for us to, to, to preach and to press on. It's hard for us, you see, to give of our money and to sacrifice, you see, time that we might have with our families to do things for Jesus. It's hard, you see, to do the work of the gospel. And I would ask you, my friends, to realize it's always going to be that way. Therefore, set your face like a hard, sharp flint to do that work. Yes, telling your unconverted family members is hard. And it's true that you need to be wise, you need to be gracious about the way you speak to them. You should be obnoxious in the timing and the way that you speak. It's true that this needs to be there. But resolve by God's grace to speak up on behalf of your Savior. There's never going to be an easy time. There's never going to be time when you safe, in which Oh, they're going to think it's very nice of you to talk to them about those things that they hate. They don't want to be told about their sins. They don't want to be told about the fact that the only way they can be saved is by having somebody pay for sins. That's pretty hard. Nobody wants to hear that. They'd rather be able to just do, 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 do everything on their own and say, thank you. I don't need Jesus. It's hard for you to tell them that they need him. But resolve, by God's grace, speak up in behalf of your Savior. It's hard to tell others at work, for instance, of the Lord Jesus. But I urge you, by the example of our dear Savior set forth in this text, break the cowardly silence. That silence that's held you captive for so long. Do not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus. And cry out to God to help you set your face like a flint and speak out on behalf of your Savior. <clears throat> Of you that have been speaking, I realize to those that are Christians in the sermon on your own. We're going to gather around the table here and remember what Jesus did and how he gave himself up. He set his face like a flint to save you and me. And I want to just say that if you're not a believer this morning, I want to just encourage you to, to take this perspective that you will never be a loser if you follow Jesus. He says, what? I don't like that idea of Christians having a hard life, being hated by people, being opposed by I don't want to get involved that way. I just kind of like to kind of be on the sidelines. I'm not going to be against them. I'm not going to hinder them. I'm just going to, I, I just don't want to do what they're doing. It's just a little bit too much for me. My friend, you will never be a loser if you trust your soul in the Lord Jesus. You will find out that in those hard tasks to follow him. And by the way, you don't do that to get saved, but because you are saved. In following through on those things, there is great joy. Jesus suffered because of the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. 
And that joy will be experienced in this life, and it will be experienced. I don't. I don't think any Christian that's in this room would ever swap places with you if you're not out. If you're outside of Christ, there's nobody that's a true believer that would say, "Well, it's pretty hard, and therefore I want to give up being a Christian." No. Jesus is so precious. Salvation is so precious. It's all so wonderful that we wouldn't give anything up. Sometimes we, we're tempted not to say what we should say and do what we should do. We're inconsistent. But dear friend, there's nothing better than being a Christian. There's nothing better than knowing this Lord Jesus, having him for your Savior. Think of what he went through for you. Think of how he didn't give up. Think of how he persevered right up to the end that he might save sinners from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we bless you that you've given to us a remarkable example of this one who set his face like flint. It's undaunted in his resolve to save us from our sins. We plead with you, Lord, that as we gather now around the table of remembrance, that you would be pleased to enable us to reflect 